Venice is a carnival of opposites, and Leona Carvati thinks she understands it all. Canal and palace, magician and merchant, plague and pantomime. As a patrician's daughter, Leona enjoys the sparkling life of a noble family, although she would prefer to be tending to her flowers than practicing violin or standing around in a ball gown. But what Leona fails to realize is that Venice is a city of stone in a world of water. And ruling the dark waters are the Seleni, ageless, cold, and calculating. When she loses everything she relies on, Leona must set a new course that will shake the foundations of Venice itself. Well, good evening there, kiddos. It has been exactly one calendar month since we did a podcast on another book. Except for that little one we did in North Pole, but that doesn't count. So, Lil, you will be very happy to hear that I got The Sinking City by Christine Cohen sent up here, and I just got it this evening. So I'm going to start that tonight. I'm trying to delay a tiny bit because my sweet mate is in the shower and I can hear it really loud and I'm sure you guys can hear some kind of background noise. But fortunately he's a pretty quick showerer so I anticipate him being done here quickly. I will go through the book The Sinking City page by page Christine Cohen Cannonball Books, an imprint of Cannon Press from Moscow, Idaho. We've been through there, 2019, going down to Boise from Coeur d'Alene. Or did we? I think we did. Well, if we didn't, we went, we came really close. We might, no, I think we did. And one of my favorite uh, pastors that I watch on YouTube, his name is Doug. Oh, goodness, I haven't watched him for a long time. Uh, it'll come to me. Anyways, I like his stuff. Published by Cannonball Books, an imprint of Canon Press, P.O. Box 8729, Moscow, Idaho, 83843. one www.cannonballbooks.com Copyright 2021 by Christine Cohen This is her second book after The Winter King, of course Uh, James Engerbretson did the cover design which you can't see 
Um, until interior illustrations are by Forrest Dickinson, printed in the United States of America. Excellent. And the dedication page says, For Joel, my best friend through calm and troubled waters. Very sweet. Must be your husband. Okay, I'm going to start reading. I don't want to bore you all with... My jibber-jabber. Eight. That's the number of times Master Ans Anselmi had insulted me today. I might appreciate his gift for colorful comparisons if they weren't so often aimed at my musical shortcomings. You scrunch your fingers together like a baby clutching his rattle, he mutters. Nine. He pushes my fingers apart on the wooden bow, and I suppress a scowl. I'm standing near the balcony, and the cool breeze drifting off the canal brushes my forehead with a sympathetic hand. My neck itches, and my arms ache from this wretched position. I want to put the violin away and escape upstairs back to the garden patch on the upper terrace where my tulips are unfolding in bloom. But, so long as Father hasn't changed his mind, this will be my last music session. Lesson. So, I swallow my irritation and adjust my fingers once more. Better. Again. One, two, three, four. One, two, and begin. I hold the violin to my jaw and slide the bow across the strings. Closing my eyes, I imagine the girls who played at the Pieta last week. The graceful dip and curve of their arms, the gentle bobbing of their heads. Your wrist, Master Anselmi snaps, and my eyes flew open. Keep your wrist higher than the bow. Higher, Signora Leona. From her perch at the writing desk across the room, my younger sister Olivia giggles, her black curls dancing like marionettes. Beside her sits a kitten made of smoke that mother bought from a street magician. Smoke animals don't last much longer than a week, and this one is starting to fade around the edges. When Olivia laughs, the kitten bunches up its cloudy legs leaps off the desk and drifts behind her chair. I scrunch up my face at Olivia in mock annoyance. How many times have I said this? Master Anselmi continues. And yet your wrist droops like, like a sinking gondola. Ten. My teacher pushes the velvet curtains aside and gazes out the window as if he'd like to jump into the canal and be free of me. I'm tempted to suggest it. I should be eating honey cakes and examining dissected flowers with my magnifying glass, not forcing my fingers to perform a task they detest. Again, he commands. One, two, three, four. I crook my elbow and run the bow across the strings, and for a moment the sound is pure and crisp. Then my arm slips and the violin lets off a shriek. Master Anselmi flinches. 
Mother Mary, help me, he mutters. I do my best with what you have given me. A gull screeches outside the window, drawing my attention to the radiant beauty of the late winter morning. The sky is a vivid violet swath above the green lagoon, as if the heavens have have unfurled a banner for my 16th birthday. In the distance, the sails of fishing boats hover like crimson birds above the water. If I squint, I can see the rich web of spells that supports our floating city gleaming in the sunshine. Venice is ripening with the colors of approaching spring, and my hands itch for my gardening tools to welcome all the exuberant new life into the world. Most Venetian noblewomen, including my mother, hire magicians to make their gardens more lush, their flowers brighter. I prefer patience and a good trowel. Master Anselmi clasps his hands behind his back. And again, one, two. A knock at the door disturbs his counting. I'll answer it, I say quickly thanking whatever saint oversees well-timed interruptions. When I open the door, the words die on my lips. The young man in front of me is shaking. Sweat cuts rivers through the dust on his face. He holds a girl, no older than two, who is solemnly sucking her thumb and forefinger. I recognized him instantly, although it's been years since we last spoke. His father works as an examiner on my father's ships, ensuring that they're seaworthy. We'd played together as children until mother decided I was too old for trips to the arsenal. Benito, what's wrong? I opened the door wider, wondering how he slipped past the servants. Come in. I can't stay, he gasps and shifts the girl higher on his hip. This must be his sister. I remember four younger siblings, but I never met this one. They've already taken him away. Taken who? Behind me, Master Anselmi clears his throat. Benito rubs at his eyes with his free hand. Father, they found him guilty. And then I remember. One of my father's ships... La Masella sunk last month. I'd assumed it was a storm, but now my stomach tightens in fear. I can see Benito's father in my mind, his graying beard and kind smile, the knotted rope ends he saved for us to play with. Guilty? I repeat. They say he didn't perform the final checks, that he sent the ship out with a cracked rudder. It's not true. Where are they taking him? Benito's face twists. The prison by St. Mark's Square. They'll hang him this afternoon. Hang him. The girl pulls her fingers out of her mouth and echoes him brightly, uncomprehending. Leona, shut the door. Master Anselmi's voice is high and annoyed, but I ignore him. What can I do? 
It's too late for a character witness, and if they are already leading him to the square. Ask your father to write a letter of pardon, Benito says. Mama's sleeping, his sister remarks. I shake my head. He can't overrule the magistrate. Mama's sleeping, the girl says impatiently. Benito pulls a hand over her mouth. She's not sleeping, V. She fainted. Leona, please, please help me. He'll hang like a criminal, but it wasn't him. He lowers his voice. It was the Seleni. I'm sure of it. And the mention of the underwater creatures. At the mention of the underwater creatures, a chill courses through me. When we were young, Benito had whispered stories of ships sinking in still lagoons and children disappearing from bridges at twilight. Don't stand too close to the water's edge. They're always watching, always waiting. Master Anselmi scoffs from behind me. Nonsense! The Seleni are a peaceful race. I don't think a letter of pardon will help. I say. I glance around as if the answer might come to me in the drawing room. Olivia worries her lip as she watches us. Her smoke kitten bats at its evaporating tail. Master Anselmi's arms are crossed. His foot taps a disproving beat. But it's your father's boat. Benito eyes tighten in desperation. I've seen it before. A patrician can pardon if it's his own boat, but you have to ask him now. They're... Signorina Leona, Master Anselmi interrupts. His leather shoes pad across the rug towards us. We have another half hour of lessons. Without a glance at Benito, he shuts the door. Wait, I cry, but Master Anselmi refuses to move. His wide black robes eclipse the door. V whimpers on the other side. I am paid to provide violin lessons, not hear charity cases. I ball my hands into fists, thinking quickly. As a student, I am obligated to obey him. But as a patrician's daughter, I could order him to step aside. No, I can't waste my time arguing, and Master Anselmi is no, in no mood to hear it anyway. My sister and I lock eyes. She points at herself and holds her hands up in pantomime of a violin. Precious Olivia, she's giving me a way out. Thank you, I mouth. As Anselmi leads me back across the room, my sister sashays towards us. Master Anselmi? I say firmly, today you may give your lesson to a far superior student. Olivia snatches up the violin and slides into position by the window, beaming a smile. I bob a curtsy, dash across the room, and throw open the door. Benito is still standing there. Hope flickers in his eyes. Let's go. I gather up my skirts and break into a run down the long hall to the grand marble staircase with Benito and his sister close behind. 
Father's office is on the ground floor beside the canal. Each day, gondolas pass through his portico and deposit their wares, and Father is always there to meet them. I love spending time in his storeroom. The air holds a host of different smells, depending on which of his ships has made port. Sacks of cloves and cinnamon, baskets of ginger, the musky smell of rolled carpets, the sweet, milky scent of sandalwood. I can almost imagine myself in the bazaars of far-off lands, haggling over pepper or wax or weightless silks. But I can't daydream today. I need all my wits to convince Father. His ships are as precious to him as children, and losing one to the waves is a bitter fortune. I'll need to tread carefully, and I'll need to go alone. I glance at Benito as we walk, his disheveled clothes and dirt-smeared face, and V, whose nose is now dripping between the fingers still lodged in her mouth. If I bring them, Father will be even less likely to help. He'll remind me of other families bereft of food and wages because his ship failed to reach its destination. Perhaps I should have sent Olivia instead. Father grants her requests far more often than mine, but there's no time to get her now. And while I may not be the favorite daughter, I am better at arguing a case. As we pass one of the adjoining storerooms, I guide Benito and V inside. Wait here, I say. It's better if I speak to him alone. Benito hesitates as if he means to argue, but I shake my head. Trust me, I'll do what I can. I pat the buoyant curls on V's head and walk away, gathering my thoughts as I hurry toward the door at the end of the hall. It's closed which means father's in a meeting. Otherwise, it stays open so he can watch the comings and goings in the storerooms. Before I even reach the door, I know who's on the other side. The smell slips through the wood, soaks into my skin, and I suppress a shiver. It's the smell of rotting seaweed, of salt and bogs and decay, of death by water. Seleni. Traders of pearl, ancient as the waters they inhabit. They swam into our lagoon long before anyone now living was born and begged to be allowed to stay. Some think the patricians should never have agreed to it, no matter how much pearl they offered. My father calls them tricksters and refuses to trade with them. So I'm baffled that there's one with him one with him now. I quiet my breathing and press my ear against the door. There must be another way, my father says. His words come out fast and strained. There is none. The voice grates like a knife on rocks. I have three ships. What use have I for ships? I strain to catch the answer. Are they talking about the sinking 
of La Masella? Is father in danger of losing more cargo? Something crashes in the room and I jump, reaching for the door handle, ready to rush in at the first sounds of a fight. The Cellini may have signed a peace agreement, but I don't trust any creature with that many teeth not to bite. Then father speaks again, and I exhale, pulse pounding. I won't do it. I smile slightly. The Cellini love to lure patricians into rash trades, but my father has always stood firm. Others have paid a steep price for their greed, but the Carvati family's hands are clean. The Cellini laughs. I've never heard one laugh before. It sounds more like the bark of a sea lion, quick and harsh. You have no choice. The air turns cold, and I back away from the door. Unlike the patricians who wear dark robes, solemn guardians of the great state of Venice, the Cellini's pearl-colored robes drape over their lithe forms like burial shrouds. They all look the same, more or less, willowy as reeds, a head taller than an average man, their skin the opalescent hue of milk droplets in water. My father says that the ones he's met have all been male, and that if there are female Cellini, then they stay below the waves. But I'm not convinced there is a difference. They all look like monsters to me. As a child, I was so frightened of their pale faces that I would burst into tears if one passed me on the street. It seemed as if those eyes lingered especially long on me. Even now, as the door opens, my stomach constricts at the overpowering smell of death. The Cellini's, the Cellini stares down at me as he glides past. His eyes are round with large pupils, deep golden irises, and no eyelids. I do not look away. I want him to know that I am not intimidated by his presence. Something is different about this one. He's larger than the others, and he carries himself the same way our esteemed doge does, as if all of Venice rests on his shoulders. He wears a silver crown inlaid with pearls. Silver bracelets wrap up his wrists and scrape together as he moves. The sound sets my teeth on edge. He stoops into a bow that catches me off guard. Signorina Leona, he murmurs, I have been waiting for you. I wasn't summoned, I snap. I should not be so afraid of this monster. He's in my house, my city. He has no authority here, and yet a damp chill still spreads across my skin. Tell me, what do you know of my kingdom? He asks. Kingdom is a generous term, I say. It's a tomb. His nostrils flare. 
The halls of my palace shine not with gold, but they have a splendor far surpassing anything your feeble sun might shine upon. It's easy to mistake pebbles for pearls when you live in the shade, I reply. He barks again. Such quick wit. He raises his arm and his clammy fingers brush my cheek. And such pink skin, he murmurs. I clench my teeth and hold my ground. That's enough. My father claps his hands twice. My servant will see you out. A man appears from the closest room and motions for the Cellini to make his way down the hall. He bows to me again, but this time there is mockery in the motion. I am the lord of the Cellini, he says. Soon you will bow to me instead, all of you. Before I have a chance to respond, he sweeps down the hallway. Our servant walks stiffly behind, one hand resting on a dagger at his waist. When I turn back, my father is seated at his desk, watching the creature's retreat. His eyes are troubled. A broken Greek vase lies in pieces on the ground. Father, I say tentatively. Slowly, he focuses on me. But still, he doesn't smile. I'm not surprised. He rarely smiles at me. Leona, he says, blinking as if to clear his eyes of emotion. Come in. His shoulders straighten, and as if by reflex, I straighten mine as well. Chapter 2 Today, Father's office smells like oranges, although the lingering scent of the Cellini sours the air. The double doors are open, and the green waters of the canal lap gently at the limestone steps. A pot of purple, a pot of purple crocuses sits on his desk, a gift I gave him for his birthday last year. I'm glad that wasn't what broke, although given the flower's sad state, it might have been kind to put it out of its misery. It's been overwatered. The leaves are yellowed and brown in spots, and the soil has the greenish tinge of algae. I make a mental note to come back later and transfer the pot to my, to my room for care. What is it? He asks, pulling my attention away from the suffering crocus. I clasp my hands at my waist. May I speak with you? He nods. It'll have to be quick. I'm waiting on a shipment of candles and topiaries that your mother requested. I think she intends to light the ballroom on fire for your birthday gala. He attempts a smile, but it fades quickly, and we wait in strained silence as a servant sweeps up the shattered fragments of vase. When the servant leaves, I sit in the leather chair facing father's desk. The layers of petticoats beneath my periwinkle dress bunch up, and I smooth them out carefully before I begin. I wanted to talk to you about the trial this morning. La Masella. Yes, I chose my line of questioning carefully. Why weren't you there? 
He gestures at the pile of papers on his desk. I was busy. I sent Giacomo in my place. Because you didn't care what the ruling was? Because I have faith in the justice of our legal system. So you don't know the outcome, I ask. He's not back yet. A gondola glides past the doors. My father taps his fingers lightly on the table. What is troubling you, Leona? I know what happened at the trial, I pause. They found the examiner guilty. My father nods. I assumed they would. My ships have traveled that route for years without incident. It was clearly a builder's error. The examiner should have caught it. He's going to hang. I'm pleased that my father's eyebrows raised slightly. That is the usual punishment, he says. If we fail as shipbuilders, then Venice is no longer Venice. Yes, of course, I murmur, swallowing back my frustration. Arguing the ethics of our justice system won't save Benito's father. Do you know which of your men it was? No. Giovanni, the examiner. His brow furrows. How do you know all this, Leona? Benito came to see me. My father sighs. Today of all days. Leona, I have a lot on my mind. This isn't a good time. I stiffen, but my voice stays calm. There isn't time. The execution is this afternoon. Why did he come to you? Because he thinks I... He thinks we can help. Father leans back in his chair. By writing a letter of pardon. Yes, I sit up eagerly. It's your ship. You can absolve him. It was my ship. Until Giovanni's carelessness cost me both it and the cargo on board. It's a miracle no lives were lost. It's a terrible loss and the examiner should be punished if it was it, if he was at fault, I say. The court found him guilty. Despite his stern expression, I think my father's enjoying this. It is said that Venetians love a good argument, and since father allowed me to study rhetoric with my older brothers, I can easily hold my own. Without being at the trial, it's hard to know for sure what evidence was presented, I respond. But ships sink for more reasons than rocks and broken rudders. I do not have to say the name Cellini to know he's thinking it. My father steeples his fingers. Pardoning him would display weakness. Pardoning him would show the great benevolence of the Carvatis. Is it benevolent to reward poor workmanship? Dock him a month's pay, I say. It's a harsh punishment with seven mouths to feed, but if they are careful, they can manage. 
Your workers will praise you. Giovanni will return to his work with renewed zeal, and a man in your debt is more valuable than a corpse. The sound of wood sliding against stone disrupts our argument. A gondola bumps against the steps, sending a wave splashing upward. Before it soaks the nearby crates, it breaks into a th- it breaks on a thin web spell that Father had hired a magician to install a year ago. Signore, the beaming gondolier hails my father. A shipment for you. Thank you. My father looks at me for a long time. I stare back, willing him to say yes. No. He rings a bell on the desk. Three servants arrive and begin unloading the gondola. My heart sinks, both at the answer and at my father's callousness. He has pulled out his ledger and is preparing to count the inventory. I am clearly dismissed, and yet I hesitate. I thought I caught a gleam in his eyes. He is testing my persistence. I jump to my feet. A birthday present, then, I say. I already bought you many presents. Sell them at a higher price. I don't care. If you grant me this, I promise it's the last thing I'll ever ask of you. My father's face pales. Don't speak nonsense, he says. He holds up a hand, and the servants stop. My father pulls out a piece of paper and scratches a few lines on it. Then he folds and seals it with a Carvati crest before handing it to me. I breathe out hard and flash him a grin that he does not return. Thank you. I curtsy and hurry out the door. Halfway down the hall, I turn back. My father has not moved. He is staring straight ahead, and whether it's the reflection from the canal water that's causing his eyes to shimmer or something else, I cannot tell. I press the letter of pardon into Benito's hand, and his face widens into a grin. He kisses the paper and then kisses his sister who sits next to him on a crate, and they both laugh. I can't help but smile, too. Thank you, thank you, he says. We're in your debt. There's still a penalty, one month without pay. But come find me in a few days, and I can help with that, too. Someday I'll return the favor, Benito says. In truth, I can't imagine how a boy from the docks could help a patrician's family. But Benito always wanted things to be fair, even when we played games as children. I pat his sister's head, and she waves goodbye as they walk away. After they leave, I walk upstairs and take in the scene on the landing. The house is a flurry of preparations. Servants carrying topiaries and linens rush along the center hall and into the ballroom. Others polish the enormous mirrors for the guests to admire themselves in. A painter lies on top of scaffolding and touches up the fresco on the ceiling. I can hear my mother's high voice giving orders from the ballroom. 
She speaks so quickly. It's a marvel any of the servants understand her. I hurry up the marble stairs to my chambers before she spots me and insists I visit the bathhouse, even though I went just last week. My room is blessedly free of maids. A fire brightens the hearth, keeping the drafts of this ancient house at bay. In the corner, a round iron cage hangs from the ceiling, although my pet pigeon, Rella, is nowhere to be seen. Years ago, my brother Theodore and I found her abandoned in St. Mark's Square. Once she was old enough to fly, we trained her to carry letters between our two rooms. We even taught her to come when we whistled. She's most likely in her second cage in Theodore's room. I suspect he'll send her my way later with a birthday message, as he does every year. The presents I opened at breakfast are waiting for me on my writing desk beside my latest experiment, a hyacinth bulb suspended in a glass jar, its thin white roots curling toward the water. I sample one of the chocolates from my oldest brother, Gabriel, and inspect the gift he gave me. Latest women's fashion in England and France. Clearly, he's noticed that my domestic education is patchy at best. While my sisters, Olivia and Julia, before she passed away, practiced etiquette and penmanship, I roamed the grounds hunting for earthworms for my garden patch. The only subject mother and sister insisted on was music, one of her great passions. Another child might have loved this arrangement, but my parents weren't lenient because they thought it was best for me. They simply didn't care. As for the rest of my presents, my brother Theodore gave me the third volume of De Vegetabilibus by Albert the Great, and a new trowel to replace the one I ruined by digging too close to the foundations of the house. A jar of honey flavored with raspberries was Olivia's gift. I open the jar and breathe in the sweet, faintly tart smell. Tomorrow I'll convince our cook to bake a special loaf to go with it. I strip down to my petticoats, grab the box of chocolates and de vegetabilibus, and throw myself onto the bed to read until my dressing maid arrives. The ballroom floor shines like a mirror, luminous and dazzling, reflecting the glories of Venice, a city born from the water. The crystal chandelier is the moon, glowing with countless candles. More candles float in the air, suspended by spells. They catch the lights of the women's jewels and sparkle in the mirrors on the walls. Dozens of topiaries fill the room, decorated with glass birds and tiny gifts for the guests to take home. We have plenty of courtyards to host parties, but tonight, Mother had brought the beauty of the garden into our home. She is a master at work. Everything shimmers, 
including myself and the dress my mother commissioned especially for tonight. The bodice, cut lower than I'd like, is deep burgundy with a cream embroidery of flowers and vines. The satin skirt falls in shimmering pleats. White sleeves billow like sails when I move my arms, and an intricate lace collar encircles my neck. It's a gown I'd admire on others, but would never choose to wear. I don't enjoy drawing such attention, but this clearly, but this is clearly my mother's intention tonight. The maid applied so much makeup to my face that I hardly recognize myself. I turn to father as we reach the end of the receiving line. My neck is stiff from nodding and my hand bears the kisses of a hundred noblemen. Did mother invite every member of the great council as well as their wives, mistresses, and firstborn sons? He glances around like he's looking for someone. It would appear so. She is... He pauses as if debating whether to discuss political matters with his daughter, but I've already guessed. Hoping you would be picked for the Council of Ten this year, I say, and he nods. His eyes dart around the room as if he'd rather be somewhere else. What have I done now that made him want to get away? The old familiar ache fills my chest. Theodore says I'm imagining things, but he's never been held at arm's length. Never caught his parents whispering about him from across the room, their brows furrowed with worry. Never felt as if his very existence was the cause of some deep sorrow in their lives. I'm sorry if this isn't what you expected, he says. I shrug. I wasn't naive enough to think this party was entirely for me. The guests are men of power and influence, here to make deals and discuss trading opportunities, not celebrate a nobleman's daughter. But if father is feeling sorry for me, then this might be the perfect time to talk to him. Father? I begin tentatively. Giovanni's pardon wasn't really my last request. There, that secured his attention. His eyebrows raise. Oh? No. I've practiced this speech a hundred times and anticipated every objection he might have. But now my thoughts are scattered. Since I'm sixteen now, I'd like to go abroad. I'd love to see Florence or even Paris, and this would be the perfect time. I could bring a few servants so you wouldn't have to come. I wouldn't be a burden to anyone. Why did I speak so fast? Desperation has caused me to stumble over my words. What? Father glances at me, startled, but then immediate look, immediately looks away, searching the room. What is he looking for? Perhaps this was the wrong place to bring it up, but it's too late now. I speak louder, trying to hold his attention. Don't you have a second cousin in France? Perhaps she would let me stay with her. 
I'm dying to see more than just Venice. I'm dying to escape. My siblings have all gone abroad to visit family, but Father always found reasons for why I couldn't come along. Leona, my father says quickly, and at first I fear I've upset him with my request, but his eyes hold panic, not anger. I hope you know that I love you. I go still, drawn up short by those strange words. It's noisy in here. Perhaps I misheard him. My father rarely tells me he loves me. Olivia, yes, many times, but not me. I am the bird trapped in her cage. Does does that mean you'll let me go? I can't. His voice is low and calm, but I can hear fear lapping at the surface. What is he afraid of? It's too late anyway. God knows I tried. Leona, I didn't think. Signor Carvati. One of my father's business partners slaps him on the shoulder. Just the man we'd need to settle our dispute. Come, Signor Loridon is making a fool of himself again. My father gives me a desperate look as his friend leads him away, and I stand alone in the middle of the floor, bewildered. What does he mean? It's too late. I have no time to ponder this, however, as a boy a little older than I is fast approaching. A tall blue wig shivers on his head as he walks, and his eyes rake down my dress in a way that makes me want to run. If I weren't wearing these ridiculous wooden shoes. I square my shoulders and try to remember his name. He's a patrician's son. Stefano? Carlo. Valerio. I'm fairly certain it's Valerio. Leona. He practically purrs my name. I didn't have a chance to tell you how stunning you look. Valerio. I give a shallow curtsy. Thank you. Please excuse me. Gabriella's looking for me. He brushes a curl over his shoulder with a ridiculous flourish. Your brother is in an enthralling conversation about Eastern trading ethics that I only just excuse myself from. Hardly a topic you would find interesting, Caramia. Gabriel, Gabriel, I'm sorry, kiddos, I'll have, to, I'll have to land on a name. What do you want to call him? Gabriel, I'm going to call him Gabriel. Gabriel is all the way across the room, handsome as always, in his velvet cap and deep green jacket. I can tell from the earnest set to his shoulders that he's deep in debate. I clench my teeth and smile demurely. Thank you for the birthday wishes. I try to sidestep, forgetting that these tall shoes were built for forward motion only and lose my balance. My hands pinwheel as I struggle to stay upright. If I fall in this dress, it will take at least four servants to get me up again. Valerio steps away, his hands raised as if to ward off my embarrassment, 
and there's nothing I can do. I am falling backwards, sinking slowly, inexorably down. Instead of the polished floor, I collapse into the seat of a particularly comfortable settee. I gasp in surprise. Moments ago, this violet settee was over by the wall. Only the partygoers closest to me noticed the disruption and, apparently disappointed by the lack of drama, they turned back to their drinks. One gentleman across the room hasn't looked away. He is a member of the Magician's Guild, although I don't know his name. A piece of charred paper slips between his hands and floats to the floor. A used spell. Beside him is a boy about my age. The magician whispers to his companion and gestures toward the wall behind me that is now missing a settee. The boy nods and points to a faint purple line shimmering in the air between the wall and where I sit. The path the magic took. The magician is too old to see the shapes and colors of magic. It's a gift only the young possess. I am not used to seeing my surroundings manipulated so directly, but I incline my head in a gesture of thanks, as if he had simply pulled up a chair for me and the magician smiles. It's such a genuinely kind expression that I immediately like him. Perhaps this is why I'm so bothered that no one else is speaking to him or his assistant. Guests swirl all around them, but these two, with their plain merchant clothes, might as well be servants. I wonder why Mother invited them. Magicians don't usually mingle with patricians, except to conduct business transactions. A spell to keep a palace from sinking, or assistance in negotiations with a Cellini. Hardly the type invited to balls. Regardless of why the magician and his assistant are here, I don't like seeing them ignored. Valeria was already left to find someone more impressed by his attention. So I maneuver my way out of the settee and walk toward the magician and his assistant, determined to show them a warm Carvati welcome. They haven't moved. Their arms are clasped behind their backs, shoulders stiff. The assistant leans back warily as a countess lurches past, her face flushed, the painted mole on her cheeks sliding toward her chin. A look of disgust crosses his face so quickly that I almost miss it. For a moment, I glimpse this party through his eyes and the ballroom's splendor dims. I am halfway across the floor when the flames on the candles sway in unison, waving like ocean kelp before flickering out completely. The room sinks into darkness. The music dies, replaced by the gasps and cries of guests. Moisture fills the air, cold and clinging. A rancid smell stings my nostrils. The Cellini are here. 
Slowly, my eyes adjust to the darkness. The pale creatures are everywhere, between the topiaries, on the balconies, in front of the doors. My childhood fear returns, washing over me in sickening waves. Why have the Cellini come? Why this show of force? Our guests are in a flurry of drunken confusion, dropping glasses and wigs, groping for the doors, huddling in circles. Venetians boast that they have more power than the Cellini, and yet we cower in their presence. What is happening? A man near me mutters. Is this part of the entertainment? I don't like it, his wife says, clutching her necklaces. I turn around, searching for my family, but instead I look straight into the glistening eyes of a Cellini. The Cellini. The one who bowed to me outside my father's office this morning. Enough, he commands, and the word rips like lightning through the air. The room falls silent, lost in shadow. The monster takes my arm. Cold seeps through my lace sleeves, numbing my skin. I twist my elbow and try to pull away. Let me go, I cry, but his thin fingers only tighten. Sharp nails dig into my skin. A wave of nausea washes over me. Where are my brothers? My father? The magician and his assistant? Surely this is a breach of the treaty, so why is no one stopping them? The guests have withdrawn, leaving me alone with this creature in the center of the ballroom. Friends, friends, the Cellini calls out. His voice is low and slick now, more like the unsheathing of a sword. Do not let yourselves be frightened. We have not broken the laws of our treaty. Our invitation to the ball never came, but we invited, but we were invited nonetheless. It is the sixteenth birthday of Leona Carvati, and according to the agreement I made with her father twenty years ago, I have come to claim her. Father! I cry, searching for his face in the stricken crowd. I find him on the musician's platform not ten yards away. He's beside my brothers. He's holding them back. The moon cuts through the window and throws a wane of light across their faces. Theodore and Gabriel look shocked and angry, but my father's expression is far worse. Resignation. Okay, and that's the end of chapter two. All right, wow, that is quite an interesting and crazy start to this book. Guys, I want you to think of some themes. Think of the framework that Christine is uh, building her story into that is alternate, uh, that is different from reality, that is an alternate reality. Think of the things that uh, are so far really different.
Um, and what else? What about any common themes that you notice with her writing? Um, how about the main characters? How, the the main character, Leona. Um, how, what about her personality, her attitude, uh, her strengths, her weaknesses? Let's think about those right now. Okay, I'm going to stop. We're getting towards an hour and the podcast is trying to shut me down. All right. I love you, kiddos. Um, I hope you have a great night. Very thankful that I have you kiddos to read to. And I'll catch you later. Welcome back home from being gone for so long. Night, night. Love you, kids.